title. And, um, and of course, as the years have gone by and I've delved deeply into the Dharma, the Buddhism, yes, uh, indeed a, a proper title, the teachings of the compassionate Buddha. And um, I, I have been invited to, to share a little bit about uh, the story of the Buddha to commence this, um, these core teachings of, of, of Buddhism. And so I wanted to share um, some of the story of the Buddha. To become a Buddha involves developing qualities, qualities such as generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, effort, patience, truthfulness, resolve, a determination, equanimity, loving kindness. These are very beautiful qualities, sometimes called the 10 perfections. And uh, one that aspires to become a Buddha is known as what's known as a Bodhisattva. And within the Theravadan or early Buddhist teachings, these are people that have their deep intention to one day uh, develop these qualities, these perfections to a, 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 a perfected extent of these qualities of like generosity and virtue and so forth, these 10 perfections. So the, the latest Buddha that I'm referring to is his name was Siddhartha Gautama. And he was born as a prince, destined to become a great king, nearly 2,600 years ago. And it is said that um, the Buddhas appear in the world and then they pass away and the teachings will be here for a while and then eventually they'll leave. And then again, at some point in time, another Buddha will arise as part of the cosmology of within the Theravadan Buddhism. And it's actually said, actually from a Star Wars theme, a long time ago in a faraway galaxy, there lived another Buddha named Dipankara. And this is a long, long time ago. And sometimes uh, in early Buddhism, they speak about time spans that are very magnificent and almost beyond comprehension. So this was like, like an eon ago. And an eon, just to give you a sense of the time of an eon, sometimes a metaphor is spoken about that a bird flies over the highest mountain of the world and brushes its wing against that mountain once every hundred years. And by the time that once every hundred years that wing brushing against the tallest mountain of the, of the world grounds out into a flat plane. So you can get a sense of an eon is a long period of time. So that's why a long time ago in a faraway galaxy there lived another Buddha named Dipankara. And Dipankara was walking somewhere and it was just after a rainstorm, there was a lot of puddles and there was this lay person and his name was Sumedho. And he saw Dipankara Buddha coming and he was so touched with the awakened, compassionate qualities of the Buddha that he was just so inspired and saw that there was a puddle that the Buddha was going to be walking on. And he decided for whatever reason to lie down in that puddle and let the Buddha walk over him to keep his feet somewhat dry. 
and the Buddha read his, you know, mind to some extent, saw what Sumedho was doing and, and decided to, to, you know, Sumedho's offering his body and, and the Buddha decided to accept this offering. And so he began to walk over him. And at that moment, Sumedho had this great desire, I want to become a Buddha too, just like Dipankara. And after Dipankara walked over Sumedho, he paused and turned to Sumedho and said to him, you will become a Buddha. Your name will be Siddhartha Gautama. And, um, and thus began Sumedho's journey from lifetime to another developing these different paramis or perfections of generosity and virtue and renunciation and wisdom and energy and patience and truthfulness and resolve and or determination and loving kindness and equanimity from lifetime to lifetime developing these qualities and these are actually recorded in what's known as the Jataka tales and you can read about these and some of these have been converted into children's stories and they're teachings of the bodhisattvas sometimes when he's a human sometimes when he was a bird sometimes when he was a lion all different types of wonderful stories 652 different stories of the teachings of the bodhisattva cultivating these perfections from lifetime to lifetime till eventually being born 2,600 years ago as his name was Siddhartha, a prince destined to become a great king. It was very customary in, customary in ancient India at those times to when a, a new baby was born is to have some wise people come and kind of take a look at the length of the ears and how long the nose and the arms and different facial signs and bodily signs are and the way they spoke and so forth and then they would give predictions and so four of the five wise people said definitely become a world-turning monarch great great king and of course his father was very happy to hear that but then one person said who was actually the youngest no he will not become he will, he will not become king, he will become a Buddha. And when um, the king heard this, he got very concerned because he didn't want his son to become a Buddha. He wanted him to become a great king. And so even though this astrologer was the youngest and but gave this prediction, somehow it stirred inside him to be careful and to make sure that Siddhartha's education and upbringing would be very sheltered so that he would not see any of the signs of strife in the world. Lived a very protective type of life and, and the father introduced him to all types of education and sports and gave him anything that any of his senses desired and so he lived for 29 years in kind of this wonderful, sensual, beautiful world every wish being fulfilled, palace for the fall, palace for the winter, palace for the spring, palace for the summer, lived a very cushioned life, living in this sense-fulfilled world. And in his 29th year, somehow Siddhartha had this feeling, realizing he had never been out into the kingdom and, and decided that he wanted to go out into the kingdom just to see what it was like outside of the palaces. And so he 
went out with his charioteersman named Chana and went on this outing out into the kingdom and, and they came across a, a very old person walking with a cane and the hair is gray and wrinkles and so forth. And, and Siddhartha asked Chana, who is this? And Chana said, this is a person that, that is old and that there's no escape from aging. And in that moment when Siddhartha heard that, it was like a little piercing. He had never considered. Of course, he could see he was once a boy and now he's a, a, a young man, but somehow it just never dawned on him. The truth of aging. It was like a little bit of a piercing. But he went back to the palace and soon forgot because everything's really nice there and all the sensual delights and everything and he just got caught up in his ways and was just living his, his life in this way and but then there was another inkling of him to uh, go out once again into the kingdom and so he called Chana and they once uh, went out again and this time they came across a very ill person and probably Siddharth had seen people ill before but not like all of a sudden, like his eyes opened up. Wow, this person is really sick. You could see this person could barely move and they were vomiting and diarrhea and they were, this person was really suffering. And so Siddhartha asked Chana about this and Chana said, yeah, this, this is, uh, no one can escape from illness. I think we get to know this in the pandemic. And somehow, just the way that Chana said it and just his experience of being out in the world in the kingdom and experiencing this, this someone really being ill and that no one can escape it, was it was like a second piercing. It was, he really, it was very sobering. No one can escape from illness. Well, the story goes, he went back into the palace and yes, I kind of stayed with him, but then again, so easy to get lost in these sensual desires and parties and food and all types of enjoyment. And he once again was just caught up in his life and enjoying. And a period of time went by and then again, he had this inkling of, huh, I, I, I want to still go out in the kingdom. What's there? And this time, of course, the story goes, they came across a dead person, a corpse. And said, Arthur, Arthur could see right away, this, this person wasn't breathing. There was some discoloration. At one point, said Arthur put his hand on the person's arm and it was cold to touch. The type of cold you it's hard not to forget that cold. I remember touching my father's arm after he passed. I can still feel that in some way. And this really deeply pierced Siddhartha of the truth that no one can escape from death that Chana had told him. At this point, he went back to the palace, but this time he didn't so easily get lost in these sensual desires or pleasures and he was really really pierced with these truths of death and of illness of aging and 
he he's beginning to not have much enjoyment with any of these things, knowing that one day he will get old and that everyone will get old and that one day there'll be illness, one day there'll be death. And he just didn't know quite what to do. And, and these former joys that had been so wonderful, lost in this dream world, no longer um, had an interest with him in, with him to do and didn't know what to do. In some ways he was pierced and depressed. What is this life? And so the story goes that he went out still one more time and feeling that impact of the truth of aging and illness and death and not knowing what to do. And this time he came across like a wandering holy person, a sadhu, a samana, a hermit. And the way that this person walked by, you. Siddhartha could see right away there was a certain type of calmness, a certain type of intentionality of mindfulness, a certain sense of serenity within this person. And he asked Chana, who is this person? I have never seen a person like this ever before in my life. And Chana said, this is a, a sadhu, a holy person that is dedicating their life to understanding the meaning of life. And when he heard that, there was a glimmer of hope. You mean there's actually people that dedicate their lives to understand the meaning of life? He had never heard of this. He didn't even know that this was an option. There was a glimmer of some hope. And he went back to the palace and, and he, there was just all these swarms of feelings of, of, of the realities of life, illness, of aging, death, but also this possibility that one could begin to make some peace. So he felt deeply into this, what to do, and, and he decided that he wanted to follow those steps of that sadhu, and that he too would get on the path to understand what is the meaning of life. His father had heard this and, and knew that um, it heard that he was going to be leaving because Siddhartha let people know. And his father was so upset and begged his son to stay and said, look, I can give you anything. I have all, so much money. I can give you anything. What do you want? And Siddhartha said, prevent me from getting old, prevent me from getting sick, prevent me from dying. And the king was defeated. He knew he couldn't prevent that. He begged him. Please stay. And Siddhartha said, you'll be able to find, you know, the palace will run fine. I, I, I need to go. And he was even married and even about to have a child. And trust he spoke with his wife and also explained, I just have to go. And so one night he gave away his princely garments and he went off into the forest to meditate. I'm going to go ahead a little bit and then come back because I, I don't want to leave you with what a louse he was to leave his wife and his kid. And the story goes that after his awakening, he came back to the palace and met with his wife and with his child. And, and he actually taught them the Dharma of what he had learned. And they too became fully enlightened.
So I just want to come back to that because I think that's an important part of the story that, you know, he, the Buddha was a family man after all. He came back to his kid, to his wife, and to offer the jewels of the Dharma to them and to his family. Actually, his aunt was the one that started the, the Bhikkhuni, the nun's order. But when Siddhartha left the palace, he sought out other meditation teachers, sought out meditation teachers to practice and to learn meditation and to hopefully find this peace of mind that he'd been uh, on the search for. And so he was evidently a, a really good student. And after a while, a number of these teachers would say, you've learned everything that I know. Come and sit with me and we will teach other students. But it was never enough for Siddhartha. And part of the reason was that at that time, the most prevalent meditation practices in India was, was concentration meditation practices, which developed profound absorption and unification, one-pointedness of mind. And of course, when you're very one-pointed or unified or have deep absorption, the mind, our mind naturally will get very serene, very tranquil, very calm, very one-pointed, very unified. And while we're in that state of mind, there's a lot of serenity and tranquility and peace. But when we stop doing that meditation, he was still left with, well, what is this life? Yes, I can calm my mind down to a profound degree. I can experience such serenity and tranquility from this type of calmness, but I still don't understand about suffering. What is this life? So then he had heard, after traveling with many teachers in these concentration meditations that he became a master of, he had heard that actually there was a group of of practitioners that were into what's called self-mortification, very severe punishing practices of the body and the mind. And there was a, a group of thought that, that said that it's through the self-mortification, the extremeness of punishing the body that enlightenment can be found. And so he traveled with these five ascetics and began to do these very severe self-mortification practices. And one in particular that Siddhartha adopted was the limited intake of food, gradually lowering his food intake to one grain of rice a day. After a long period of time of eating just one grain of rice a day, he became very skeletal. And it said almost when he put his hand on his abdomen, you could almost feel his tailbone. And of course he was getting weaker and weaker and weaker as time was going on. And he realized that if he practices much more, he was going to collapse and perhaps he would surely die. And he realized after practicing so sincerely these practices of extreme self-mortification that this too was not going to bring him awakening and he left these five ascetics. And he traveled to a, a place where he was nourished and regained his health slowly and surely. And then he came across uh, in his journey a, a tree that he decided to take a seat underneath. And there he um, made a deep resolve and commitment that he was going to stay at this tree and meditate here. That he had been to so many different teachers and teachings, done so many different practices, and he was now going to see for himself with his own direct experience. 
And he made this resolve, I'm going to stay here till my skin falls off my bones. There's, there's nowhere else to go. I'm going to stay here and see for myself with my own experience. So there's this deep type of resolve. And as he sat underneath this tree, this beautiful tree on a hill overlooking the countryside, and it, it brought up to him a memory of sitting underneath another tree when he was a boy that he had completely forgotten. And it was one of those beautiful days, and here in Santa Cruz, for those of you that are in Santa Cruz, we know about these incredibly beautiful days that we get at times. And it was one of those beautiful days he was reflecting now as he's sitting underneath this tree of when he was a boy sitting underneath another tree and just this beauty of the day, this certain type of oneness, a feeling of connection with life. And he was just recalling this, just like he was experiencing right now, this oneness, just the right temperature, the wind, the setting, the beauty. So yes, it was evoking the sense of that memory of that beautiful day as a boy and the oneness of things. And then another memory arose from that day that did from that day that he had completely forgotten. And that on on a field, he was observing some farmers and some cows, some oxen, and some plows, and they were getting ready to turn over the soil to for some planting. And perhaps because his sensitivity was so heightened, and he was feeling that sense of connectedness and oneness with the world, when the plow blade went into the soil, maybe because his sensitivity was so heightened, he could almost remember hearing like the worms crying out in agony and pain. To me, this is a very powerful moment because it really holds this juxtaposition of life, of the beauty of life and at times just so heartbreaking it is of life the beauty the preciousness and the fragility the heartbreaking qualities of life so now many years later he's sitting underneath that tree and he had totally forgot that moment of this heartbreaking quality of life and the beauty and perhaps because of that memory as he began to do his meditation practice he shifted his focus which he had never done before. Again, if you understand the training of concentration meditation, it's about penetrating one object and becoming at one with it to develop unification and serenity, calmness and so forth. But what he did was that he had a certain amount of concentration for sure, but rather than turning his attention towards unification and oneness, he turned his attention towards how the breath came in and came out. There was like this penetrating mark of impermanence that he had never done before, but that was evoked perhaps because of that memory of the fragility and the preciousness of life. And so he began to focus rather than developing deep unification and concentration, instead beginning to penetrate this changing nature of things, impermanence. And it is said that as he began to focus on these beginnings and endings, on things that are arising and passing within the breath, that it gave him some deep realizations 
and understandings about life. For the next many weeks, you're going to hear about these realizations. But they're known as what's known as the Four Noble Truths. But I, I consider them more to be powerful and penetrating realizations or understandings about what is this life. And the first understanding or realization was that suffering really does exist. It's not to be denied. That it's a very sobering, very humbling, and un deep understanding acknowledgement of the heartbreaking qualities of life. We will, in time, be separated from those that we love, that we can't escape from separation, we can't escape from aging, illness, and death, can't escape from being in an uncomfortable or difficult situation. So it's a sobering and deep recognition and understanding of this truth. And after this deep and penetrating and sobering understanding of this truth of suffering, or the heartbreaking qualities of life, he turned his attention towards causes. What is the cause of this? And then another realization arose within him, a powerful and penetrating realization, and the realization of misconception, of unawareness, of looking for happiness outside of oneself. And how so easily he himself knows from his own experience how lost he got in sensual delights, how lost he got in trying to look for outside recognition and importance, or how he would just lose himself into things so he didn't have to feel. So a penetrating insight into the causes of suffering, beginning with misconception, unawareness, ignorance that gave rise to a sense of craving of trying to find this happiness outside of ourselves. just pondering deeply these realizations, understanding of, as awareness begin to awaken in him, and understanding, and then this understanding of this third and humbling and sobering realization that if, that if these can be lessened, these misconceptions, these types of cravings, that happiness indeed comes from inside us, not outside of us. Seeing through all of these different stories and narratives and conditionings, this was the way to freedom. The fourth and the last powerful realization was the recognition that there is a path that one can walk upon, sometimes known as the Eightfold Path, or you could reduce it to just these qualities of living virtuously that helps develop our concentration, that helps develop our sense of insight or wisdom. The Eightfold Path, cultivating these qualities of our speech and our livelihood, our, our effort, our practices of mindfulness and concentration, culminating with great wisdom and understanding. So these were these powerful realizations that arose within Siddhartha Gautama that now became known as the Buddha. This was his awakening of this understanding of suffering and its causes and the path to great freedom. And when we look at the word Buddha, the Buddha means the awakened one. And, and what I like about this is that the Buddha was a human being, just like you and me. 
and that the potentialities for awakening exist within all of us. No exceptions whatsoever. Every single one of us has the possibility to awaken. So this is the story of the Buddha and the Buddha's awakening that I wanted to uh, to share with you. And again, um, this is something, these awakenings are available for all of us. And we're going to learn much more about these core teachings to support these awakenings. And, you know, on a personal side, and I won't go into the long story of it now, but I've always loved this story, and I've, I've told this story without probably exaggeration hundreds of times. And every time I think of it and speak of it, it still moves me. And part of it is, is because it's, it's a, I can relate to it myself as a human being, because I too have experienced from a very early age the truth of death that actually brought me onto the path. By the time I was nine, I'd lost a brother, a best friend, grandfather and like what is this life and so I love the story of Siddhartha Gautama and the Buddha because it's such a human story I can relate to it personally and to me my entrance way into the Dharma was through the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu which is the Chinese Taoism or the way of life and it's one particular epigram number 47 that just struck me so deeply this is after living so many years with so much confusion and so lost. And in this particular poem, it says, there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And I sat with that and, and thought about that again and again. There's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And then it began to gradually dawn on me that if I wanted to know something, I needed to look inside here. And so I'm very grateful for these teachings. Uh, Carl Jung says, who looks outside dreams? Who looks inside awakens? So this is the core and the heart of the Dharma. This awakening, seeing through the stories that have held us back. So thank you all very much for your attention and I'm going to pass the gong on <laughs> and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stick around, but thank you so much.